According to data by the FBI, nearly 40% of missing people are people of color, despite people of color only making up about 13% of the population. But the Columbia Journalism Review created a tool that calculates the number of stories your disappearance would net based on demographics and found that missing black people only account for 13% of news stories, while missing white people were featured in 70% of news stories. So before we get into today's story, I want to share with you the case of Ariana Fitz. Ariana Fitz was reported missing from the San Francisco, California area on April 5th of 2016. She was last seen in Oakland, California in January or February of 2016. On April 8th of 2016, Ariana's mother, Nicole Fitz, was found murdered and buried in a public park in San Francisco. It is believed that Ariana was not with her mother when she was killed. At the time Ariana went missing, she was only three years old. She was born on September 6th of 2013, so she would be 10 years old now. She is black with black hair and brown eyes. If you have any information concerning this missing girl, please contact your local FBI office or the nearest American embassy or consulate. I'm also going to be posting pictures of her on our Instagram page at mama.mysterypodcast so that you can share and hopefully get her seen by more people. Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly, and I am all by myself today because Austin is pretty slammed with work right now. So I'm just going to give him the day off because I am his manager um, effective right now. So anyway, before I get into today's story, we have to shout out some Patreons because it has been a minute since I've done that. I don't know why... I fell off on that so hard, but I'm super behind. So we're going to shout out a few and I promise I will do better about this going forward. I literally think it's going to be part of my new year's resolution, but anyway, here we go. Amber Ann Techie, Nicole Thomas, Kathy Wilson, Rebecca Hayes, Corinne McKernan, Teresa Heron, Ashley. Oh, I'm going to mess this up. Ashley Pryor. Prier, I'm not sure. It looks French. Um, Jennifer Kearns and Dale Van S. Thank you all so, so much for signing up for our Patreons. I'm actually going to be hopefully finishing up your stickers today and getting them in the mail either today or tomorrow. It's so much work. I don't know if some of you guys know this, but our Patreons get stickers once every two months. And it's usually about six stickers that I pick. Sometimes I design them myself. Sometimes I just choose them. Um, but I send them out every couple months and the process takes forever because I write, well, I was writing the thank you notes and now I've like scaled back and I just started printing them out, but I still sign them. So anyway, I'm trying to figure out the best way to like do this efficiently, but the ones that are getting sent out this round are so cute. I'm going to put them on our Instagram. So if you're interested, you can see what you're signing up for and what you're going to get. But anyway, I love the stickers. You can slap them on your Stanley. You can put them on your computer. You can give them to your mom. I don't know. Do whatever you want with them. They're your stickers. But anyway, I'm so thankful for you all who support our show um, through the Patreon. So without further ado, we're going to just dive right into today's story. 
And I want to know your thoughts at the end of this, because I actually think that this might be a case that has kind of divided some people. So I really am curious to hear where you all stand. I'm not going to judge either way. I kind of know where I stand on it, but I'm, I still want to know what you all think. So today we are going to be talking about the case of Sidney Powell. Sydney Powell was born on March 21st of 2000 to her parents, Stephen and Brenda Powell. She had one younger brother, Andrew, and her childhood was pretty idyllic, or at least it was reported that way. Her family was a very tight unit. They traveled together every year, taking memorable trips to Disney or various beaches. Now, the Powells are a Catholic family, so Sydney and Andrew went to private Catholic schools starting out at St. Sebastian in Akron, Ohio for elementary and middle school, and then St. Vincent St. Mary for high school. While Sydney was in high school, she built a stellar reputation among her teachers and her peers. She maintained a 3.8 GPA, and she even mentored younger students. She spent one year playing lacrosse before she devoted her full time to soccer, eventually becoming the captain of the soccer team. Her teachers remembered her as being conscientious, quiet, and respectful. She held herself to a very high standard, so sometimes she would become kind of anxious or stressed about her tests. And one of her teachers remembered an incident where Sydney came into her classroom bawling and just inconsolable because she was supposed to either take a test or make a presentation for her chemistry class, but she kept saying that she was struggling because she couldn't see the numbers. The teacher asked her how she could help if she wanted her to go talk to the chemistry teacher herself and maybe ask for an extension. And that chemistry teacher did give her an extension and everything ended up being fine. But this teacher who helped her just specifically remembered her being upset about not seeing the numbers and thought that that was bizarre. She had never had an issue like that before. No other kids had ever complained like that. And then after that incident, it never happened again. At home, her grandmother Elizabeth said Sydney was a sweet and soft-natured kid. They'd spend time doing puzzles together, and Elizabeth said that sometimes Sydney could be a bit of a worrier, but that she was a really great kid. It didn't impact how she treated other people. Sydney had a great relationship with her mom, Brenda. The two were so close, and they shared an unbreakable bond. Brenda worked as a child life specialist in the hematology oncology unit at Akron Children's Hospital. She even founded the oncology teen program at the hospital and devoted her life to serving children with cancer and their families. And it just takes a very special kind of person to take care of kids who have cancer, especially terminal cancer, and their broken-hearted families. But she did, and she impacted so many lives throughout her career. After Sydney graduated from high school, she got a scholarship to attend the University of Mount Union in Alliance, Ohio in the fall of 2018. Mount Union is a relatively small school with only about 1,400 undergraduate students, and it was only about one hour away from her home in Akron, so Sydney was really looking forward to this next chapter, especially because she was doing it with her best friend, Lauren Curry. Sydney and Lauren had been best friends all throughout high school, and they both decided to go to Mount Union together, so it was a very natural fit that they moved into the dorms together. 
Now, Sydney's first year of college was pretty rough, and I get that. Change is really hard. I remember my very first semester at KU, I was taking algebra, and math is just like a completely foreign language to me for the most part anyway. And the first semester of my freshman year, my grades were fine except for this one math class. I was failing or at least close to failing, and I was even going to study sessions for extra help, but it just was not computing in my brain. And there was one night in particular, I remember studying with that thick algebra textbook, and I just reached a breaking point. Like nothing was making sense. My answers were constantly wrong. And I just remember being on the floor on my knees with the textbook on the floor and slamming it on the floor. And I was filled with shame and embarrassment because I knew I was going to fail this class and I didn't know how to break it to my dad that I was going to have to retake it. It was a horrible, horrible feeling, especially knowing how much college was going to cost. And thankfully, I was able to just withdraw from that class and then retake it. I ended up retaking it in the summer and by the grace of God... I got a B. I don't know how, but anyway, that is what ended up on my transcript. But I just remember this moment in my immaturity and my vulnerability where I truly felt like I was going to fail out of school and just be the biggest embarrassment to my family. And thankfully, that did not happen for me. I went on to graduate with a degree in English, literally the least math-intensive major I could possibly choose. But I mean, College is hard. If you've been to college, there's so much change that happens in that first year. It's completely natural for students to feel an insurmountable amount of pressure and stress. But for Sydney, her freshman year of college was even worse. Her GPA sank down to a 2.2, which placed her on academic probation. And when you're on academic probation, you get one chance to turn it all around. So fall of 2019 would be her opportunity to do that. And all she had to do was get her GPA above a 2.5, but she didn't. So in December of 2019, the school had no choice but to suspend her, disallowing her from enrolling in the spring semester and telling her that she had to move out of the residence hall. Now, I want you to think about this. She was in high school, this stellar student with a 3.8 GPA. She got scholarships to go to Mount Union, and then her very first semester has a GPA of 2.2. Now, obviously... I feel like this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. College is not for everybody. If you've listened to this podcast for a long time, you know Austin went to college and he was placed on academic probation because he just never went to class. But like Austin will always say that the, the classroom setting was just not for him. He knew he wanted to be an entrepreneur and he paved his own way without having any college background. He ended up getting suspended his first year and then just dropped out. So, I mean, and he's very successful now. So please don't think that I'm like judging anybody who struggles with college or chooses not to go. It's just simply not for everybody. And I wish that Sydney would have given herself a little more grace in this first semester. It was tough, but she didn't tell anybody. She literally did not tell anybody about failing out of college her freshman year. She didn't tell her friends or her family. Instead, she returned home to Akron for Christmas break and then spent time with her family Then she returned to Mount Union in January. She never moved a single thing out of her dorms. She just stayed as if nothing ever happened. 
And her friends and roommates had no idea that she was actually unenrolled by the school because Sydney was still going to classes and living in the dorm. Her roommate Lauren said that nothing seemed to be wrong with Sydney. The only thing out of the ordinary was that her key card to get into the dorms quit working. But for the most part, she thought Sydney was doing well. And the summer before, or I'm sorry, the summer between the freshman and sophomore years, the two spent a lot of time together. They went to the mall, they hung out at their houses, and they just did things that they normally did. Nothing ever was amiss that would have indicated she had failed out of school. One week into the spring term of her sophomore year, or what should have been her sophomore year, Sydney's sorority noticed that she was no longer on the roster, but she was still coming to meetings. So the sorority president reached out to Michelle Gaffey, who works for Mount Union as the associate dean of students. Michelle reached out to Sydney and asked her to come in and meet with her. At first, Michelle gave Sydney the benefit of the doubt that maybe she wasn't aware of her suspension or just didn't realize what it meant to actually be suspended because there's academic probation and then there's academic suspension. So maybe she's getting the two confused. But Michelle found that there was a letter sent to Sydney confirming her suspension and Sydney had even signed it to acknowledge the suspension. So Michelle said, Sydney came in and she told Sydney, you know, hey, there seems to be some confusion here and it seems as though you haven't moved out of your residence hall yet from what I can tell and you're not enrolled in this semester. You're not a student here this semester. And at first, Sydney replied saying, oh, no, I am. No, I am. I'm a student here. So the dean, giving her the benefit of the doubt again, thought maybe Sydney had appealed the decision and she just wasn't aware of it. So she checked, but there was no appeal filed and there was no schedule for Sydney even. She was just showing up at random classes. She also double-checked that Sydney did in fact sign that suspension notification letter. And so by the end, Sydney finally seemed to understand that this suspension was real and she had to move out. So they set a new deadline for her to move out of the dorms, but that day came and went and Sydney was still there. She had not packed a single thing. She showed no intentions of moving out. Now, at this point, the dean of students, John Frazier, had to get involved. He met with Sydney to find out why she was refusing to leave the school. He even offered to call her parents for her to explain the situation, but she told them that they were already aware, and Sydney told him that her parents were having issues with her younger brother, Andrew, and she just didn't want to add to their stress by coming home. But this wasn't true. Andrew wasn't causing problems at home. Sydney was just avoiding the shame and embarrassment of having to tell her parents that she was on academic suspension and essentially kicked out of school. So Dean Frazier set a new date for her to be out of the dorms. But then two days past that date, Sydney was still there, again, showing no signs of packing or leaving. Now, at this point, they had to get security involved to get her out of there. On February 24th, she's finally gathering her things to leave when her friends ask her why she's leaving. And she told them that her parents just felt like it was a good idea for her to take a little break from school. Again, she's just continuing with this lie. Now, on this day, February 24th, Sydney went back home to Akron. Now, the Powells used the Life360 app. So when she came home, the app sent an alert to her parents, Brenda and Stephen, and they were confused because spring break wasn't set to start for another week. 
So this prompted Brenda to text Sydney, asking why she was home. She said, quote, just got a notification from Life360 that you're home. Do you have afternoon classes? Are you okay? End quote. Now, Sydney replied, nope, not this week. My teacher and her husband took this week as vacation time, so just gave us a worksheet and some work online to do while she's gone. Plus, I have my meeting anyway, so I just thought I'd stop home before. Brenda replies, quote, why do I always feel like you are scamming me? Just remember, you need to keep the grades to keep your scholarship. Sydney replied, yes, I know. My grades are good. Thank you very much. So some of you might know that Austin and I own a supplement store here in our hometown. And um, the other day, Austin called me because he was at his store and there was a customer shopping who had questions about some of the supplements, but he barely spoke any English. It was mostly Spanish. So Austin called me and asked if I could help translate. And he put me on the phone with this guy. Sure enough, I was able to help him figure out what it was he was looking for and answer some of the questions that he had. And by the end of the phone call, I was so happy in that moment, finally getting to use this skill in a way that helped somebody. And the best part is that I learned to speak Spanish from an app, you guys, not from school. The app is called Babbel. You've probably heard of it. It's a conversation-based learning tool, and you learn from real human voices, not those robotic ones. But make no mistake, Babbel is not just a game to occupy your time and make you feel like you're learning a language, and it's also not overly academic and rigid. It may not always be easy, but it is simple. Over 60% of Americans believe the most useful second language in the U.S. is Spanish. And did you know that bilinguals outperform monolinguals in tasks requiring working memory? That means Babbel isn't just a language learning app. It's a tool for sharpening your brain's ability to hold and process information. This fall, you can start speaking a new language with Babbel. Why Babbel? Because it just works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or fooling yourself with language apps that are little more than games, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Studies from Yale and Michigan State University and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. For instance, one student found that using Babbel for 15 hours total is equivalent to a full semester at college. With over 10 million subscriptions sold, Babbel is real language learning for real conversations. Now here is a special limited time deal for our listeners to get you started right now. You can get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for Mama Mystery listeners at babbel.com slash mama mystery. That's right. 55% off at babbel.com slash mama mystery spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash M-A-M-A mystery. Rules and restrictions may apply. To keep up with her lie until spring break, Sydney had no choice but to leave her family home. And with nowhere to stay for a week, she slept in her car or in hotels until she was finally able to come home. On the evening of March 2nd, 2020, she returned to the residence hall to watch The Bachelor with her friends. And this was something that they regularly did. 
The next day, she drove back home to Akron. Unbeknownst to Sydney, her dad had been on the phone with officials at the university, and he had just become aware that Sydney was unenrolled for that semester. And this all happened because her dad, Stephen, was trying to log on to the school's website to check the balance and what he owed. Yes, Sydney had a scholarship, but there were still some things that the Powells had to pay for out of pocket. And when he tried logging in to make a payment, he was met with confusion as he was not allowed to log in. He called the school to figure out why, and that is when they told him that his daughter was unenrolled. So he told Brenda what was going on, and she called the school but was met with an answering machine, so she just left a message. When Sydney got home that day, her parents were notified again by the Live360 app, and Stephen, now armed with this alarming new information, knew that he had to confront Sydney. So he left work to come home, but he actually left his phone at work so that Sydney wouldn't be able to see on the app that he was on his way there. When he got there, he asked Sydney what was going on, and she insisted that the school was wrong, that she was still enrolled. But he tells her, you know, look, if there are issues, we can work through them together. And he even offered to let her take some time off from school to recalibrate. She just bawled, saying that her friends had their shit together, but she didn't, and she just felt like a failure. And he tried to assure her that that was not true. While Sydney was breaking down, Stephen called Brenda and asked for her help. She was better at handling these tough situations and these conflicts and, you know, especially family drama working in this oncology unit. So she's well-equipped to handle tough conversations. And Brenda and Sydney's relationship was arguably tighter than the one that she had with her dad. So she agreed to come home and take care of Sydney, and then Stephen went back to work. When Brenda got home, she texted Stephen at 12.36 to let him know that she made it and that she was still waiting on a call back from the university. But 16 minutes later, Stephen's phone rang. It was Detective Kenneth Deese, a longtime friend of the Powells, and he works for the Akron Police Department. He heard a well check call come over the radio and the residence sounded familiar. It was the Powell's house. So Stephen called home to make sure everything was okay, and Sydney answered, assuring him everything was fine. It was actually the staff at Mount Union who called for the welfare check. So when the deans at Mount Union received a voicemail from Brenda asking for a callback to discuss Sydney's enrollment, Michelle Gaffey and John Frazier received the message, and knowing that they've had some issues with Sydney, braced themselves for what they expected to be an uncomfortable conversation with her mom. While they were on the phone with Brenda, Michelle said that John was just in the middle of introducing himself when they both could hear a very loud sort of thud sound like a pounding or a thud accompanied by a pretty loud scream. The deans both started to ask what was going on, if everything was okay, do they need help, but then the call dropped. So they tried to call back, but it went to voicemail. They called back again, and again it went to voicemail. They called a third time, and there was an answer. Dean Frazier said, Brenda, is that you? And the voice on the other end said, yes, this is Brenda. But both Dean Frazier and Dean Gaffey could tell it was actually Sydney on the phone. So Dean Frazier said, Sydney, I think this is you, not Brenda, and she hung up on them. So they instantly called the police in Akron. When police arrive, Sydney answers the door, and she is hysterical. She said there was a break-in. Someone broke into their house, and she could hear her mom being attacked. Sydney said her mom told her to run, so she did. 
And then on the back side of the house, it was clear that a window had been broken in, showing a possible point of entry. Inside the house, Brenda was barely clinging to life on the floor of her bedroom. Beside her was a cast iron skillet and a bloody steak knife. She was rushed to the hospital, but unfortunately, she was pronounced dead shortly after she arrived. Back at the Powell House, officers were asking Sydney what happened, but she was completely unresponsive. Stephen tried asking his daughter what was going on, but she just became catatonic. She went from sitting up on the curb of the street to laying down on her right side, tapping her head on the pavement beside her as she rubbed the ground with her left hand. And then she started eerily whispering, get out, get out, get out. When investigators combed through the scene and examined the broken window, they found that Sydney had actually broken the window and she sustained minor injuries from doing that. Her blood was found around the window, and later it was determined that her blood was mixed with her mother's. This would indicate that the window was broken after Brenda was attacked. It was eventually determined that while Brenda was on the phone with the deans at Mount Union, Sydney went into the kitchen and armed herself with a cast iron skillet. She went into her parents' room and swung the cast iron skillet into her mom's head. Then she reared back and swung again and again and again. Then, to finish the job, she retrieved a steak knife and stabbed her mom in the neck at least 26 times. Now, really think about that. If you count to 26 in your head, one, two, three, all the way to 26, that is that is crazy. And it's a small area. It's a small area of your neck. I mean, it's completely overkill. So Sydney was taken to a psychiatric facility for a 72-hour evaluation. Sydney received a diagnosis of experiencing a psychotic episode, and two psychiatrists determined that she was encountering her first episode of schizophrenia. In 2021, Dr. James Reen assessed Sydney, diagnosing her with schizophrenia coupled with major depression. Dr. Reen noted that Sydney had been progressively detaching from reality for several months prior to the incident, experiencing both auditory and visual hallucinations. Sydney concealed these symptoms and her university suspension as they conflicted with the image that she was trying to maintain. Sydney suffered several concussions while playing soccer in high school, and two of those concussions required hospitalization. So she was tested for possible brain damage, but the tests concluded that there was no evidence of any damage to her brain that would cause this behavior. And that could just kind of leads me to think about CTE. So a lot of you have probably heard of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is repeated concussions causing brain damage that can really affect your emotional state and your impulsive impulsivity, I guess. Um, but unfortunately, CTA, CTE is not diagnosable until after you die. So it's hard to tell if that's something that she could have suffer, suffered while playing soccer, although I'm inclined to think not because we're talking about NFL like players, these, these professional athletes, these big guys who are suffering repeated hits to the head from other huge guys. I just, it's hard for me to believe that her concussions were as severe, but I'm not a doctor. That's just my opinion. Her defense still kept coming back to that schizophrenia diagnosis, but the state disagreed and chose to pursue a murder conviction despite pleas from the Powell family to not go through with it. 
In a pretrial hearing, Sydney's dad said, quote, this goes against anything Brenda would want. I don't know why we're doing this. This isn't what anyone wants here. I don't know how she can handle it. I don't know how I can handle it. I'm trying to keep my family together, end quote. And his hope was that she could just be placed in a mental health facility rather than prison. But the state persisted. State prosecutor Sherry Bevan Walsh explained that it would be best to let a jury decide her fate, saying, quote, We have the utmost sympathy for Brenda Powell's surviving family members. It's unimaginable and tragic to lose a loved one to violence under any circumstances, much less when the violence is caused by another family member. In the interests of justice and the community, we believe the case is best resolved by presenting a fair and impartial jury with all the facts and letting them decide the outcome, end quote. So her trial started on September 7th of 2023, and Sydney pleaded not guilty due to insanity. Prior to her trial starting, her defense team filed a motion to the court to allow a therapy dog to sit at Sydney's side during the trial. In the motion, it read, Quote, now come the victims in this matter, by and through undersigned counsel, pursuant to Marcy's law, and move this court to allow Avery to, a trained facility dog, to be present in the courtroom with Sidney Powell throughout trial. Sidney Powell's family is intimately familiar with her symptoms and treatment since she was diagnosed with schizophrenia and PTSD by multiple health professionals in March of 2020. Ms. Powell was diagnosed with PTSD as a result of Brenda Powell's death and Sydney's role in it. The victims are aware that Sydney's therapists have expressed concern that photographs, video, and testimony during trial will likely re-traumatize Ms. Powell. Victims have a constitutional right to be treated with fairness and respect for their safety, dignity, and privacy as set forth in the Ohio Constitution. Accordingly, the victims demand that the Summit County Prosecutor's Office make Avery II available for Sidney Powell during the trial. The victims know that hearing witnesses recall the incident as it unfolded will be extremely triggering for Ms. Powell and could cause adverse side effects. Said side effects risk frequent breaks and delays, which would distract the jury. The victims in this case have repeatedly insisted that a trial is unwanted and a violation of their rights under the Ohio Constitution. Nevertheless, despite efforts to resolve this case short of trial, the state has decided to move forward. Accordingly, the state has a legal, ethical, and moral responsibility to respect and honor the victim's request to make Avery II available to Sidney Powell during the trial, end quote. It really, really irks me that Sidney Powell is referred to as a victim. She is quite literally, the opposite of the victim. In fact, she is the perpetrator of the actual victim, which is Brenda Powell. And so I just could not believe what I was reading. The more that I read, I just, the more my mind blew. So in Judge Kelly McLaughlin's response, she pointed, pointed out that Article 1, Section 10A of the Ohio Constitution, often referred to as Marcy's Law, recognizes a number of rights for victims of crime, but it defines victim as, quote, a person against whom the criminal offense or delinquent act is committed or who is directly and proximately harmed by the commission of the offense or act. It specifically excludes the accused from the definition of victim. 
Further, it states that the term victim does not include the accused person or a person whom the court finds would not act in the best interests of a deceased, incompetent, minor, or incapacitated victim. She goes on to say that the assistant prosecutors have informed the court that the prosecutor's office will not be offering or allowing Avery to to accompany the defendant at trial. Therefore, the court finds that this motion is moot. Now, I don't know if you would refer to that as a win for the state or not. I mean, obviously, the judge and the court sided with the state in this case, but just to sum it up, Sydney and her team and her family wanted her to have a, a dog at her side, a therapy dog, because she was going to have to see the pictures and video and footage from the day that she killed her mom, and they were afraid it would just be too hard for her to have to relive that. Um, I might sound really callous when I say this, but... The last thing that we should be doing is coddling defendants for a crime, a heinous, vicious crime that they committed. You committed this crime. You lived through it. And having to relive it is nothing compared to what your mom had to go through. So while I understand Sydney's family side, and I can't imagine what her dad must be feeling not wanting any of this to happen, and you know, this is quite frankly, just completely destroyed that family, I'm sure. We still have to respect the laws and the rules in this country. And I don't know, it just seemed kind of like she's being coddled and I I just don't love that. So anyway, that's just my opinion. To go on with the story, Dr. James Reardon evaluated Sydney in the fall of 2021, which was over a year after the murder. And he diagnosed her with having schizophrenia and a major depressive disorder and Dr. Reardon testified that Sydney told him she did not recall the attack and only remembered flashes. Her last memory of her mother was that they were sitting on the couch and she was comforting her. She recalled going up and down the stairs of their basement, wanting to get away. Her next memory was at the hospital. Uncrossed by prosecutor Brian Stano, Dr. Reardon agreed that it was rare that sufferers of schizophrenia act out violently, and even rarer still that such patients report symptoms before the age of 13. Now, Dr. Reardon noticed or noted in his assessment that Sydney told him she had experienced auditory hallucinations when she was as young as 11. Dr. Reardon testified that the lack of motive, spontaneity, and brutality of the attack were all factors that suggested Sydney was in the throes of a psychotic break. But the state argued that while she may have schizophrenia, she didn't meet the requirements for an insanity defense. Her friends all reported that she was acting relatively normal, and she even had the frame of mind to lie to her friends, the staff, and her parents. Even after she killed her mom, she had the frame of mind to stage a break-in and even lied to her dad on the phone after she killed her mom. But the moment that she found out cops were on their way, she came up with the break-in theory. So when her dad called her to say, hey, I just got this call that there was a well check at the house. Is everything okay? And Sydney replied, yeah, everything is fine. He said, okay, well, cops are on their way anyway. She literally switched and said, well, dad, there was a break-in and started just hysterically saying that there was a break-in and... I just, it came out of nowhere, came completely out of left field. And I think that's the point when she went around to the back of the house to break the window to stage the break-in. 
So Dr. Sylvia Obradovich testified for the prosecution that in her professional opinion as a psychologist, Sydney did not have schizophrenia, but rather a borderline personality trait malingering the faking of a mental illness and she had an unspecified anxiety disorder, which is such a broad term. I have an unspecified anxiety disorder. I take sertraline, 75 milligrams a day. Whoop, whoop. I would be such a mess without it. But when I see that as part of her diagnosis, I don't think that has any bearing on her uh, on her actions that day. So Dr. Obradovich examined nearly 10,000 pages of Sydney's cell phone records, including messages, internet, and social media searches, and found them all to be typical of what an 18-year-old would search. Dr. Obradovich testified that someone entering a psychotic episode usually becomes totally withdrawn and says and does things that don't make sense, but she showed no sign of losing touch with reality. She was just denying reality. In her testimony, she said, quote, the best source of information for an insanity evaluation is what was said and felt at the time of the incident. She said she took a different approach than the others by examining what she knew to be true and comparing it to Sydney's statements and symptoms, and it just did not add up to schizophrenia. She also noted that Sydney reported that she began experiencing symptoms at the age of 11, which would make her case extremely rare. The psychologist said among women, symptoms of schizophrenia usually surface around mid to late 20s. She also noted that it would also have been rare for such symptoms to just go completely unnoticed. On September 20th of 2023, Sidney Powell was found guilty of purposeful murder, felonious murder, felonious assault, and tampering with evidence. She was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility for parole after 15 years. So she could potentially get out in 2038, and I think at that point she'll be 35 or 36 years old. So here are my final thoughts. It really bothers me when individuals cite mental health or temporary insanity to evade responsibility for their actions. Such defenses can unfortunately reinforce this flawed stereotype that people with a genuine mental health condition are inclined toward violence, which only further marginalizes those with real mental health diagnoses. Now, obviously, I'm not a doctor of any kind. This is just my opinion. But the doctors who testified in this trial disagreed on Sydney's diagnoses, which leaves us to choose which side we believe, right? And when we're faced to make a choice about whether or not we believe someone is guilty of a crime, we typically consider the MMO, the means, motive, and opportunity. And when you have these three categories, you can determine whether or not a crime occurred, or at least you can try to make better sense of an otherwise senseless crime, right? So it is my opinion that Sydney was very stressed and struggling with her anxiety. Sure, she failed to cope with the reality of the situation that she created, which was failing out of school. And when she realized that her mom was on the phone with the school and all of her lies were about to be revealed, she had already dug herself into a hole so deep that her immediate reaction was just to attack her mom. She refused to let her mom know that she had failed, even if it meant killing her so that she wouldn't find out. That, in my opinion, would be her motive. 
She then went to the kitchen to grab the cast iron skillet and walked to the bedroom where she swung it at her mom's head multiple times before going back to the kitchen to get a knife. Mm -hmm. So there's her means. And she was at home. She was alone with her mom. Even after she had attacked her mom with blood on her hands, she answered the phone when her dad called saying that everything was fine. She probably hoped she would have enough time between the attack and when her dad would be home to absolve herself of the evidence that she killed her mom. It wasn't until her dad told her that the cops were already headed that way that she flew into hysterics and came up with the break-in story. And these all point to opportunities or timing that she had to commit these crimes and lie about them, or at least try to. The fact that she had the frame of mind to stage a break-in after realizing cops were on their way leads me to believe that she was not in a state of psychosis. She was in a state of knowing she was about to get caught. Why do people do horrible things? Why do people react or respond to stressful situations with violence? The answer can't possibly be that anyone who does is suffering from a mental illness. And frankly, I find it to be really insulting to people who do suffer from a mental illness. I believe Sydney made a horrible choice after a string of bad choices. And maybe it's her immaturity. Maybe it was just the heat of the moment. But I don't believe it's because of schizophrenia. So I do think that the jury made the right call here, finding her guilty of murder. And I think that having to serve 15 years of a life sentence, you know, potentially that's not guaranteed that she'll get out after that amount of time. But I think it's more than fair. Honestly, I think fair would have been a longer mandatory minimum, something longer than 15 years for killing somebody so brutally and putting your family through this. Um, But that is just my opinion. And I always welcome people who respectfully disagree. I want to hear your insights. If you've If you've had an experience similar to this where you've dealt with schizophrenia in your own personal life or you've experienced someone who was diagnosed with it, then please feel free to message me and correct me, um, you know, on things that I don't know and don't understand because this is just my opinion and I, of course, welcome everybody's experience um, and their opinions. But let me know what you thought about this case. Do you think that she deserved the sentence or do you think that she should have gotten off for going through a psychotic episode. It honestly, when I was thinking about this case and I was writing it, I'm just going to go on a little tangent here if you're interested. Um, and then I'm going to wrap it up, but I was thinking about Lindsay Clancy and the parallels between this story and Lindsay Clancy's story, because obviously Lindsay Clancy's story was a little bit different, but her argument is still the same that she was suffering a psychotic break. With Lindsay Clancy, the reason that I believe Lindsay Clancy and I don't believe Sidney Powell is because Lindsay had this documented record of trying to get help for her mental illness. It was clear she had it. Doctors were already working with her. They were prescribing her all these different medications. It was clear that she was struggling. She was trying to get help through counseling and medicine. With Sydney, she was never trying to get help. She just continued to lie and evade responsibility for the situation she was in. And granted, failure is hard to accept, but refusing to accept responsibility for what you've done doesn't make you a schizophrenic. There's a disconnect here, and I'm having trouble merging the gaps, you know? So I I do believe Lindsay Clancy's um, insanity defense. I feel like that's a lot more warranted. Obviously, the trial for that hasn't started. We'll probably learn a lot more once it does. But 
I guess what I just want to reiterate is that I don't necessarily always believe that an insanity defense is a cop-out. I do think there are times when it is warranted and necessary. I believe it's warranted in Lindsay Clancy's case, but I just don't believe that it's warranted here. So tell me if you agree um, or if you disagree, because I really want to know. And until next week, I hope you all have a great week. Thank you so much for listening to our show and for supporting us. It means so, so, so much to me. The reviews that you guys have been leaving lately have just made my heart want to explode. I thank you so, so, so much. I read every single one of them, the nice ones and the not so nice ones. Um, But I really appreciate so much the kind five-star reviews that y'all leave. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Have a great week. Love you. Bye.